Thank you very much. Thanks so much for coming along, all of you tonight. Not much going on in politics at the moment. I don't know what we're going to have to talk about, actually. In fact, um, I must tell you something about the title of the show. I suspect some of you will have been before. I'm going to ask in a minute. But for those of you who haven't, um, that's really it for the rock and roll. You've heard a bit, you know, kind of a throaty introduction, the music and stuff when you walked in. Actually, the whole rock and roll politics thing is meant to be a metaphor for politics all shook up, sort of shapeless and febrile and unrecognisable from the past. And when I kind of first devised the title, politics was really quite stable, actually. I think it was during the coalition period, you know, they were winning every vote, Clegg and Cameron were loving each other and all the rest of it. But various politicians recognised that I was doing this show and needed the metaphor to work of politics all <laughs> shook up. So I got a call from Cameron last April saying, Steve, would it help your show if everyone thought it was going to be another hung parliament and then I won, but only by a majority of 12 and would fall out with half my MPs by the summer? That would be fantastic, David. Thank you very much. I'll see if I can fix it for you, Steve. And then kind of towards the end of the election campaign, I got a call from Ed Miliband who said, I've screwed it up, haven't I? That will help you because everyone thinks it's going to be a hung parliament. I said, thank you, Ed. That's really kind. And then Nicola Sturgeon phoned me up in the kind of, I don't know, about 18 months ago and said, would it help if we lost the referendum in Scotland and then destroyed every political party and dominated Scotland? So thank you so much. That would be brilliant. And then in about kind of June of last year, I got a call from Jeremy Corbyn who said, Steve, this metaphor, rock and roll politics, it's all too stable, isn't it? You need it all shook up. I, exactly, Jeremy, exactly. Can you help in any way? He said, well, I thought I might stand for the Labour Party and win. Thank you, Jeremy. That would be really, really fantastic. Then I got another call from Cameron. said, would it help if um, I actually kept my pledge to hold a referendum on Europe? That would be fantastic, David. Thank you very much. Sure, no problem. Then last night, as I was just kind of wondering... What would happen today, you know, focusing on Europe and the referendum, as we will? I got a call from Ken Livingston. <laughs> and um, Livingston said to me, Steve, it's Ken here. Would it help if um, now it's all dying down, this anti-Semitism in the Labour Party story, if I went on Vanessa Feltz's show and spent 10 minutes debating whether Hitler was normal in 1932 <laughs> and actually supported Zionism? and then went on the World at One, Andrew Neil's Daily Politics, to advance my case. I said, well, that will certainly shake things up, Ken. He <laughs> said, no, no, no problem. And would it then help? I'll do it all from Four Millbank at Westminster, the BBC offices. Would, would it help if I then leave the BBC office, find I'm surrounded by 80 journalists, and hide in the disabled toilet <laughs> while they shout at me, are you a Nazi? And... Um, <laughs> I said to Ken, well, yeah, I mean, I kind of, this is all sensitive terrain, Ken. I think I might wish to avoid it, actually, but it will certainly shake things up. So there we go. The metaphor now works. Rock and roll politics is politics all shook up, and it really is. I can't remember a time, I don't know whether you can, when both the major parties are in kind of different states of crises, with today being one of the more surreal 
days, actually, in British politics. While I was waiting to come on, I got a text from a friend of mine, John Sopel, the Washington correspondent. I thought I'd just read it to you. Um, this is, he's in Washington, following Obama somewhere around the globe. Steve, can someone tell me, please, what the fuck is going on inside the Labour Party? It's nuts. John Sopel from Washington. It's just now, literally, while I was waiting to come on the stage. I haven't even had time to reply. Maybe we'll give him a call on, on the stage. So things are very, very odd. It's all shook up. The other reason why I call it rock and roll politics, now the metaphor works, politicians have very kindly adapted their stances to make everything very turbulent, so the metaphor works. The other thing, for those of you who don't know, is... To be honest, I call it rock and roll politics as a kind of marketing exercise to attract young people to the audience. <laughs> it's working brilliantly. Thank you very much for coming along. And in fact, before we go any further, I'll tell you exactly how we're going to spend our time together tonight during this period of high political drama. Uh, could we have the lights up a bit, Theo, so I can see, see the audience? I want to just ask them a couple of questions, if that's okay. Oh, hello. So reassuring when the lights go. You, you know I do whether you're just talking to yourself when you walk on to the stage. Now, if it's okay with you, just out of interest, have, how many of you have been to rock and roll politics before, if you don't mind me asking? Oh, right. Well, thank you very much for coming again. I really appreciate that. It's completely ruined the evening because I was planning to do the whole script from the... No, I wasn't. I, it's all going to be new stuff. Okay, now, how many of you were here Blimey, it must have been about a year ago when we did a kind of big pre-election rock and roll politics in Hall 1. And I asked the audience then to give their predictions about what was going to happen in the general election. I don't know if any of you were there for that evening. You were? Quite, oh, right, okay. Very brave of you to admit it. Because I checked today and I asked everyone to predict the outcome of the election. And this was in Hall, that other hall, you know, about 600 people in there. And um, 599 predicted a hung parliament. One predicted a conservative majority, and we all mocked this person mercilessly <laughs> for the rest of the evening. Are you related to David Cameron? Well, whoever that person is, many, many congratulations, and I hope you're not here tonight. Uh, the reason I ask is we're going to have another totally unreliable survey. Obviously, I'm going to talk a lot about the referendum. I'll tell you how we're going to do things we can talk about. Labour and Corbyn and Livingston as well, but the big, big historic event that we are on the edge of is no question the EU referendum. Now, I'm not going to ask you your views on it, um, but I'm going to ask you to make a prediction just to see where you think we are in this. So, tonight, this totally unscientific audience, notorious for being totally wrong, how many of you think Britain in a few weeks' time, is going to vote to stay in the European Union. Right, the same kind of majority who predicted a hung parliament <laughs> a year ago. And how many of you think Britain is going to vote out? Right, I bet you lot have the last laugh. I mean, I don't know whether it will be a laugh if we're out, but, I mean, that's a kind of interesting um, divide. So a vast majority of you here tonight think we're going to vote to stay in. I did. I phoned my friends up from YouGov uh, just before coming on. Their latest poll is very different from your predictions. It's 43, 42% on either side. It's incredibly close, too close 
to call. So what we're going to do, um, if it's okay with all of you, I'm going to talk in the first half mainly about this high drama of Europe. We're going to explore themes of betrayal and conviction, which incidentally brings in those great Shakespearean themes of betrayal and conviction, which brings in that Corbyn Livingston drama. Imagine being Corbyn today, telling your closest friend, the friend who encouraged you at moments of great fragility early on in the leadership, that you're suspended from the Labour Party. Who are you loyal to? Who was Ken Livingston thinking he was being loyal to? His convictions, not Corbyn, because it's caused Corbyn a nightmare. Loyalty and betrayal, one of the themes we'll be looking at in relation also to the referendum. So for most of this half, I'll do some spiel. You can just relax, have a drink. I don't, are you allowed to bring them in? I can't remember. Um, and then in the second half, if it's OK with you, we'll do two things. One, as most of you who've been before know, I love, because I'm a sort of pro-politics journalist, I understand the dilemmas politicians face from Cameron to Corbyn and all the rest of it. So during the interval, I want you to get into the minds of those two in particular. And I'm going to present you with some dilemmas that they will be facing shortly. And then we'll just have a sort of question time uh, part of the session as well, where we can cover anything you want. But if I could just set the scene for the uh, first half, if that's OK. And I'm going to begin with Europe, because it, to be honest, it's bigger than Labour. I mean, Labour is it's weird. Both major parties going through crises at the same time. In the 80s, it was Labour in terrible crises. In the late, no, early 90s to very recently, the Tories in crisis. Now they're both in crisis. Extraordinary. And one of the reasons is this referendum. I'll tell you something weird about referendums in the United Kingdom. They're like the character in a film noir. They lure leaders towards them and then gobble them up and kill them. Referendums are like Glenn Close, if you know what I mean. They, they are a fatal attraction. It's amazing the number of referendums that are called and then rarely held. Um, because they are so terrifying, the closer leaders get to them. I remember before the 97 election, some of you, I mean, because I get this young audience now, you're all too young to remember 1997. But before that election, Labour, because actually behind the facade of self-confidence, were deeply insecure, offered referendum after referendum on the euro, electoral reform, endless things. And I remember saying to Blair, in about 1996, you know that period when he was walking on water, I said, God, we're going to be in the polling stations all the time under you, all these referendums. So, I don't think we're actually going to hold these things, you know? And, um, and he didn't. And I was speaking to one of Cameron's people who said Blair was quite clever to offer them and then never hold them. Cameron, of course, had no choice but to hold it. The level of mistrust in British politics and within his party is such that he had no choice but to go ahead with it, even though, of course, he didn't want to do it. And the weird thing about referendums is this. When you announce them, everything seems to fall into place, like the early scenes of fatal attraction. It's all going so well. 
And when Cameron announced a referendum, it kind of worked. It bound his party together. I think it probably did help him in the general election campaign. He was paranoid that he was going to lose MPs to UKIP. And he stopped all that from happening. But the problem with these bloody referendums, if you offer them, is in his case, anyway, you have to hold them. And that's when things start to go wrong. I'll take you back to um, January of this year. This is where we enter the kind of Shakespearean dimension of loyalty to whom and betrayal. In January of this year, Cameron was fairly confident that in terms of managing his party, he would be able to hold most of his cabinet together. He would have Boris Johnson with him in the referendum and most of his MPs. And week by week, he discovered that this was not going to be the case. In the case of Gove, I think he was genuinely torn. He was torn by that Shakespearean dilemma. Who am I loyal to? His best friends are Cameron and Osborne. He wants Osborne to be the next leader of the Tory party. I think he can dream on on that front now, but who knows? Um, and yet his conviction was that he was against the European Union and wanted to campaign to pull out, even though he knew that if he won that campaign, he would destroy his two closest friends and cause a crisis in the party to which he's committed. Who are you loyal to in politics? The great agonizing dilemma. Gove went for his convictions. But it's a wider question, who are you loyal to? Are you loyal to ambition? You know who I'm coming to next. Uh, or principle, or a mixture of both. And with Boris, clearly, it was a mixture of both. I don't think it was pure ambition, although Cameron is convinced it is, and he hates him and would love to destroy him. Um, but you can imagine, I, I gather he spent most of the weekend when he was deciding which way to go, Boris playing tennis with his sister. What do I do? What do I do? What do I do? And lots of Boris's friends said the problem with the idea of Boris leading the out campaign is that he believes we should be in, which is quite a big hurdle when you think about it. <laughs> but actually, I think he did, does have doubts about the European Union. And that, combined with ambition, led him to betray Cameron. Conviction, ambition, drove him towards out. So suddenly Cameron was facing an entirely different sort of contest. There was a bonkers scene before Boris declared, and indeed before Gove declared, where Cameron asked his loyal friend, Oliver Letwin. Most of you won't know Oliver Letwin. He's behind the scenes. He's never allowed to do an interview because he speaks the truth, and that's dangerous in politics. So he's never allowed out. But he works behind the scenes, and he's a lovely, naive uh, figure, um, deeply ideological, but very easy to get on with. And Oliver was assigned the task of wooing Boris by phone the day before Cameron was to see Boris to confirm that Boris would be on his side. And, Cam and Oliver phoned Boris at his house. Parliament was in recess. About four o'clock in the afternoon, Boris Oliver, wait a minute, I'll just wait, hold on a minute, I'm going to put you on, hold on. And Boris said to Oliver, I'm going to put you on conference call, wait, wait, hold on a minute, wait, wait, wait a minute. 
And Oliver, and then Boris said, uh, Michael Gove is here as well. And Oliver suddenly realized he wasn't part of a conference call to woo Boris, but part of a conspiracy to bring down, in effect, Cameron and Osborne. The next thing that happened in this referendum is Cameron had to lift the spell of collective responsibility. Now, we all know collective responsibility on the front bench is madness. It's a complete facade. Most of them hate each other. Most of them disagree with each other on a whole range of issues. But somehow or other, us lot in this room, out in the country, we need the spell that 24 hours a day, every day of the year, they agree with each other on everything. And the moment this spell is broken and Cameron had hoped he wouldn't have to do it, the whole thing starts to implode. And we know this, incidentally, from, as I say, we hardly ever actually have referendums in the United Kingdom. We did have one in 1975 on Europe. And the then Prime Minister held it for exactly the same reason as Cameron has now, to keep his party together. It's the only reason why these are ever held, these referendums. And Wilson similarly had to let his cabinet argue in public. Wilson very cleverly called it an agreement to differ. Quite clever, because there's a sort of agreement in there, even though they were rowing like hell. And Wilson said to his wife, Mary, and his friend, Marcia, um, well, that always gets a laugh. I don't, you know. Um, he said to his friend, Marcia, he said, I imagine it will be very subdued, the cabinet will behave themselves, and then we'll all come back together. But actually, what happened was this. Halfway through that referendum campaign, June 1975, Panorama, and it was watched in those days, um, by many, many millions, 10 past 8, BBC One, stayed, not that I remember, I was only about two at the time, but I've, it's on YouTube, you should watch it. It's great. Um, and in fact, you know, it's, I really do, it's a really great theatre. Anyway, Panorama, David Dimbleby chairing it, age, he was about 90 then, um, had Roy Jenkins, the then Home Secretary, debating live with Tony Benn, the then Industry Secretary, in the Cabinet. Unprecedented. And Wilson sat down with Mary and his friend Marcia, no laugh that time, and we'll say, be quiet, I wonder what, how this will go. And anyway, all hell broke loose. During it, live on this peak time program, Roy Jenkins said to Tony Benn, I find it increasingly difficult, Tony, to take you seriously as an economics minister. You clearly have no understanding whatsoever of economics. This was to the industry secretary in his own cabinet. And then Ben said to Roy Jenkins during the thing, with every respect, Roy, you're not telling the truth. You're not telling the truth about the transfer of power from Westminster to Brussels, and you're deceiving the British people in front of their eyes. And only afterwards will they realize that, by the way, the Tory party now is Benite. Michael Gove uses exactly the same arguments as Tony Benn. With every respect, Roy, you're basically deceiving the British people. Well, Wilson had a heart attack watching this, you know, thinking, how am I gonna pull all this together at the end? And of course, Cameron, ask the same question now. How do I put it all back together again? He feels, 
not only betrayed by Boris Johnson, but furious with Boris Johnson. He feels in a different way towards Gove, but his feelings are beginning to change. At first, he thought, well, I understand where Michael's coming from. He's a committed outer. He always has been. But as a campaign intensifies and your future is at stake, it gets tougher. And now Cameron feels kind of betrayed by Gove as well. I don't know if you noted Cameron's wife, what's her name? Anyway, um, and Gove's wife, Sarah Vine, fell out. and It gets tense and personal because people begin to feel betrayed when other people think they are being loyal to something else, their convictions. And then when the campaign gets going and the stakes are so high, and by the way, with Europe, they couldn't be higher. If Cameron loses this thing, you all th nearly all of you think he's going to win it. But if he loses it, he's gone. And so is Osborne. So the stakes couldn't be higher for them. So their whole focus becomes on this referendum. And they say to themselves, Cameron and Osborne, day in, day out, the key thing now is not to make any mistakes. And when politicians say that, they start making terrible mistakes. And this, of course, is what has happened. The first thing that happened was George Osborne's budget. Now, Osborne, in that budget, and some of us have heard from the outgoing permanent secretary, Nick McPherson, on this, Osborne's budget was aimed not to upset anyone. He wanted to do all kinds of radical things about pensions. He ached to stand there because the spring budget after an election is normally when a chancellor can do radical things. And he ached to say, I'm going to transform the British economy with this budget. It will show the Conservatives with an overall majority can deliver for all the people. We're all in this together with a radical reform. But he didn't dare say any of that. No, it didn't touch the pensions. People came to him with other radical ideas. No, no, we can't after the referendum, after the referendum. And he thought his budget was bomb-proof. And, of course, it was the exact opposite. I've never known a budget unravel so quickly. And in a way, it was kind of obvious, really, wasn't it? I mean, you would have thought it didn't take a genius, given that in the summer, when he announced cuts to the tax credits, it kind of unwound within about 48 hours, that to announce cuts to disability benefit would not probably go down that well, especially when you've got a group of Tory MPs out to get you. So he announced this budget. This is a budget which does absolutely nothing and intends to offend nobody, but I'm cutting disability benefit on the poorest people. And of course, as you all know, all hell broke loose. Totally unexpected. They thought it would go down smoothly, would hardly make a ripple. And then Ian Duncan Smith resigned and said, we're not all in this together, which baffled Osborne because apparently Ian Duncan Smith had developed the policy that he then resigned over. <laughs> but this is where people start behaving so oddly. In the tension of these fatal attraction referendums, weird things go on. And it's getting weirder and weirder. Take the case of Jeremy Corbyn, who's had this agonizing, another agonizing 24 hours. He really liked um, McDonald's PPS, so he had to withdraw the whip from yesterday. Livingston, as I say, he, 
after Tony Benn, Livingston was one of his kind of heroes, really. There he is, finally getting somewhere in the Labour Party, the very top, supposedly pulling all the levers. And what does he have to do? He has to dump his ally, Ken Livingston. This is kind of, who is he being loyal to? Who's betraying whom? And on Europe, it gets really Shakespearean. As I say, if you want to understand Corbyn, I don't think he's a Stalinist or a Trotskyite. His hero is Tony Benn, who faced Roy Jenkins in that panorama. Tony Benn was a committed outer. And I suspect if you kind of had a glass of carrot juice with Jeremy, he doesn't drink, um, you would soon detect that that's where he is too. But there he is, having seized the crown unexpectedly. When he stood for the leadership, he and McDonnell and those other Labour MPs all sat around saying, Jeremy, it's your turn. Jeremy said, must I? I've got a walking holiday planned. He said, no, honestly, it's four weeks. And Jeremy said, but what about my allotment? And McDonnell said, you'll be back at your allotment by the beginning of September. He said, but I'll lose the cucumbers. He said, but grow them in September. He gets the leadership. Every supposed lever is his. And instead of being able to pull any of them, he finds he's having to dump his closest allies and at the same time put the case for Europe when he probably, if he was following conviction rather than loyalty towards party unity, he would be arguing for out. And when he argued for out, it, there was a sense of an event because he hadn't done it, hadn't referred to this referendum as if it wasn't taking place. I don't, it was about two, 10 days ago, he gave a speech, quite a cleverly framed argument. And it was a completely mad sequence, like Ken Livingston in the disabled toilet today, uh, refusing to answer questions about Nazism. Um, there was Corbyn giving a speech on Europe that he probably personally disagreed with. And in number 10, there was Cameron cheering him on. Come on, Jeremy. Show them you can do it. This is brilliant. And he said to his people in number 10, no attacks on Labour today. We want Corbyn to triumph. And of course, there's a logic to the madness. Cameron needs the Labour vote to win the referendum. He needs Corbyn to become an authoritative figure. So there is Cameron in number 10, aching for Boris to fall. Apparently, the happiest moment almost of his life was when Obama implicitly attacked Boris at their joint press conference by explaining why he had removed Churchill's bust from the Oval Office. And it was an you know, absolute direct attack when he said about Churchill, I love the guy, I love the guy. It was an attack on Boris, and Cameron could hardly contain his excitement. And I'm told that in the press office, um, they were sort of getting out the champagne and cheering. So there they are, they're awaiting the fall of one of their own and aching for this left-wing Labour leader to become an authoritative figure in the campaign. And then it gets weirder and weirder, <laughs> this referendum campaign, because, because we don't actually hold them very often. You then have to pose the question, what constitutes a win in a UK referendum. Now, number 10 are planning, if they win this thing by a single vote, Cameron will be out there saying this is a great triumphant win. 
that ends the argument about Europe forever. Well, all I can say to that is dream on. You know, if, um, if it's a close outcome, it solves nothing. So they've all been through all these contorted agonies for months, years, and then nothing is solved. If you look at the 75 one, it's very interesting. Uh, Harold Wilson said in 75 um, that this referendum will be legally binding on all future parliaments. Well, within five years, his own party was campaigning to leave the European Union. And I reckon if it isn't a big win for Remain, the arguments about Europe will start up again within about five seconds. And the out campaign will sort of claim a moral victory. So they've got to win it big, Cameron, Corbyn, and everybody on the inside. And by big, we know it's got to be more than 10%. Look at Scotland. Everyone went to bed that night. We've, they've won by 10%, the status quo. And with, by the end of the weekend, the SNP had the biggest membership of any political party in the history of political parties. The SNP had won by losing by 10%. So they've got to win it big. And even though you've all predicted, nearly all of you, that he's going to win it, I bet most of you don't think he's going to win it by a huge amount. Well, let me ask you, do any of you think it's going to, that it's going to be won by more than 10% by Cameron and co? Oh, yes? Why, why do you think that out of interest? Hunch, more than 10%. Well, that's, that should do it. That should, <laughs> that should calm, calm things down for more than about five or 10 seconds. But you see, once the whole cast of the collective responsibility has been broken, it becomes harder and harder to recast the spell and make us believe that they all adore each other. Now, that's if it's in. Uh, who... Blimey, we're, uh, uh, how many of you said they thought we might go out? Could one of you put your hand up as to that? Uh, uh, why do you think that? Immigration is such a potent issue. You think that will swing it for out? Interesting. So, I think somebody else who said they thought it would be out, whether a bit further back, no? Ah, yes. What, why do you think that, given that so many here are for in? But the status quo is to stay in. And oh, the older people who think see out. <laughs> well, that's. Uh, yeah, well, I won't say how many old people here in the audience are, uh, how, how, how older people are going to be. I say, you know, we have a very young audience these days, but um, you're all very young. Um, well, let's explore that for a second. Then we'll take a break, and then we'll kind of open it up in a way I'll, I'll tell you about. Um, if you're right, and you're right, that it's out, I think... Be, I mean, you know, whether I, the, I haven't asked your own personal views because, you know, that's it's a slightly different event. It, it just becomes a familiar debate then about in or out. 
if we vote out, I think even those of you in the audience, not many, I suspect, who are going to vote out would accept when for a period of turbulence like nothing we've experienced in our lifetimes. Because uh, we are young, so we haven't experienced very much. But imagine what's going to happen. Take the economics. When Johnson announced in a haphazard press conference outside his house on a Sunday afternoon that he was going to campaign for out. You, some of you would have seen that press conference. There, yeah, he was in his cycling shorts. and I'm going to be out. out um, the next day when the markets opened, the pound fell just on the back of that. So imagine what happens on the Friday morning if the UK has voted out. The hell will be breaking out on the markets. Politically, Cameron has said, I will stay on if there is an outvote. Of course, there won't be, but I will stay on if there is. He won't. He'll be gone very quickly. I think Ken Clark said, give him 10 seconds. Uh, might be a bit more than that, but there is no way a prime minister stays on having taken us out of the European Union, although, by the way, we won't leave. It'll take about two years. So Cameron's gone. Osborne is finished as the co-architect of this strategy. So we're having a leadership contest to elect the next prime minister. Uh, we won't, you know, well, the, you who are members of the Tory party will have a vote, but most of us won't have a vote in that. But it will be an election to elect a new leader of the Tory party as the negotiations begin for Britain to pull out of the European Union. And Nicola Sturgeon may say, right, this is my moment where I have an excuse. Oh, by the way, everyone talks about that scenario of Scotland pulling out of the United Kingdom in a second referendum. Highly likely, although the oil price doesn't really help her. But David Davis, who I often quote here because he's always phoning me up with interesting insights. You know, the Tory former Home Secretary, Shadow Home Secretary. He's put a very interesting alternative scenario. What if the UK votes yes, but only on the back of Scotland? That England has actually voted no, but because the vast majority in Scotland are going to vote in. He said, all hell's going to break loose in England. So there are kind of a lot. He's kind of quite excited by that prospect, I think. <laughs> um, he's always said to me, David, I like him. He's a very intelligent, thoughtful Tory. He's written an interesting book. It's about to come out. But he said to me about, he's always wrong. Um, and he said to me, I first knew him about 20 years ago, I was at the BBC, and he said, Steve, I can guarantee the drumbeat of English nationalism is getting louder. Well, I've never heard it since, you know. But he thinks it'll really get loud um, if we vote in, but only on the back of Scotland. We'll see, we'll see. But what is very clear, it seems to me, is that Cameron's career, this kind of Curious figure of um, self-assurance, expediency, um, a degree of conviction will be defined by two high-risk referendums. The one on Scotland, which has generated probably a tidal wave towards independence, and this one on the EU, which even if he wins, he could lose. What high-risk stuff for this at-ease, expedient figure. Anyway, either way, it's going to be very interesting. 
and dramatic. Now, I've talked for long enough. It's time we all have a little break. What I'd like you to do, you know, over a drink or something is get in the minds of these figures who are going to face big dilemmas. We'll talk about Corbyn and Ken Livingstone as well. Big dilemmas coming up. Cameron, his response to the referendum, whether you like him or hate him, just get in his mind. I bet he's having sleepless nights over this. I'm going to present you with a couple of scenarios, and I want you to get into his mind to tell me what he's going to do. And then, John Burko style, I'll go, order, order, and show off in front of the cameras for about 10 minutes. And then we'll have a kind of question time discussion um, about anything you wish to raise at this pivotal moment when politics is all shook up. Thank you for listening to me now. See you very shortly. Thank you. <laughs> Slightly unnerving um, to walk on in uh, total silence. I, well, uh, anyway, thank you so much for returning. It's um, always reassuring. Um, during the interval, I was looking at, uh, well, in fact, a friend of mine, you probably guess who it is, sent me a headline from one of the United States newspapers. Um, and the headline is, UK Labour Party's Nazi meltdown caught on camera. <laughs> Nazi meltdown? What is going on? It is completely crazy. All shook up. Um, anyway, um, if it's okay with you now, um, what I'd like you to do, we're going to have some sort of general questions at the end, so hopefully there'll be time for you to, you know, we can have a kind of discussion. Um, but I want you to get into the minds now of Cameron and Corbyn as they approach a moment of pivotal decision-making. Like in all our lives, politicians are human beings. Decision-making is nightmarish. There are conundrums. My theory about Blair and Iraq is that he was trapped in on a certain route from which there was no escape. I don't think he was a malevolent war criminal, nor do I think he was an evangelical expert on the Middle East. He knew nothing about the Middle East. But he was trapped on a course. And after the referendum, Cameron and Corbyn, if you are right about the outcome, will have a moment which might define the rest of their careers. Let's begin with Cameron. Now, if the minority of you who thought it, we're going to vote out are right, he's gone. So at least it's no dilemma. You know, he will be gone very quickly and um, relieved, I suspect. There's part of him, I think, who quite likes the idea of going in an unusual way for a prime minister. Most of them want to stay on. Um, but he will be gone very quickly. However, if he wins, and wins big, more than 10%, he will have the space to determine the future of his party in the form of a reshuffle. A reshuffle is a moment of symbolism, really. It's no more than that, actually. But the symbolism is vital. Let me give you an example. When Gordon Brown was in deep trouble um, in, a, again, an extraordinary Shakespearean move. He brought back Peter Mandelson, the figure who he had loathed for many years because, again, he thought Mandelson had betrayed him over the leadership. And he needed Mandelson back in there to heal fleetingly the huge gaping wounds in the Labour Party at the time, and it worked. 
it calmed everything down. Mandelson, by backing Brown, quietened the rest of the Blairites, and Mandelson kind of nurtured Brown through various traumas. In fact, there was one wonderful incident where poor old, you remember that guy who defected, Sean Woodward, who was a very, who married the rich Sainsbury woman. I think they've split up, actually, in contentious circumstances. <laughs> but anyway, there was a moment um, when Peter Mandelson became very supportive of Brown in the new cabinet. And he left Brown's office at about 10 o'clock one evening in number 10. And Sean Woodward was sitting outside. And Peter just looked at him and said, ah, the night shift has arrived. And there was this sense of you know, binding him and supporting him. It was a hugely controversial move. When Gordon told his allies he was bringing Peter back, they couldn't believe it. But it kind of had a symbolic impact. Now, Cameron has got a big decision to make if he wins this referendum. Does he aim to bind the Tory party back together again, which means bringing into the cabinet in quite prominent positions Boris, who he would like to kill, politically speaking. No, no actually, not just politically speaking. <laughs> he would actually like to kill him. Um, does he promote Eurosceptics? in a way that tries to bind the Tory party, having gone through this trauma, back together again. And a lot of his people are advising him to do that. Or does he use this moment to redefine the Tory party after 25 years of ambiguity, of division, of insurrection? He decides to take on those who've made his life hell since January, and actually says, no, we're moving on from all of this. I've won. You've lost. Boris doesn't get a job. The Eurosceptics are not overtly promoted. Now, I don't care what, you know, you'll all have different views about Cameron. Get into his mind on that Friday. The reshuffle will happen very quickly. Politics never stands still. What do you do? Do you, let's take a totemic figure, do you bring Boris into the cabinet as a symbol that your instinct is that you will be a unifier? I'll tell you something really interesting about this before you decide. You've got about a minute to decide while I'll tell you this. Harold Wilson, who was seen as this great pragmatist, you would have thought he would have been the great unifier when he won the referendum. Uh, in 73. By the way, he won it by a huge margin, well over 10%, massive majority. He didn't. He took on his, um, those who had tormented him. He demoted Tony Benn. Um, he got rid of Roy Jenkins, actually, as well. He'd send him off to Brussels, but Roy Jenkins didn't see that as a punishment. Um, the wine was really good in <laughs> Brussels. Um, he, so he decided to do the sort of, right, let's take these bastards on. People like Matthew Paris, who Cameron rates and listens to, is urging him to take the bastards on and refashion the Conservative Party in a way it hasn't been since 1979, really. What do you do? Now, get into his mindset. Right, you're Cameron now, whether you like him or not. It's not 
whether you think he's great or bad, just get into his mindset. This will happen the weekend after the referendum. He's won it. Let's say, what's a kind of respectable win? Nine, ten percent, something like that. Do you, Camerons, bring back Boris and overtly promote others who called you by implication a liar, useless for negotiating a rubbish deal with Brussels and all the rest of it? You bring them back in and try and unify this traumatized party? Or do you, Cameron, go for them? Boris doesn't get a job. He's a mere backbench MP, humiliated by the reshuffle. Those of you who are the unifying Camerons, please raise your hand. The pragmatic expedient. Well, how interesting. I thought it would be... ah. Oh, well, I'll ask you what you think the halfway position is. Um, I wasn't, but, you know. Sorry, don't. Don't need a halfway position. Why don't you need a halfway position? Which other half? By the way, this is just a bit of fun. We haven't got the power to reshuffle. Um, so, sorry, why don't, why, what, which, which is the no-brainer? Ah, okay, so you wouldn't, you would not have him back in the cabinet. So you've won the referendum, you destroy him. Okay, because you think he's stupid. Yeah, yeah. No, there's, there's a perfectly respectable case to be made that he is stupid. Yeah. 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 Okay, well, some applause over there. Um, I think you're surrounded by the Boris supporters, actually. The, the applause is all over there. Okay, no, but I, that's no, absolutely. So you are Cameron, you've won, and you're going to kill him. And, and the meta, you know, has a wider symbolism, as you know. It's about taking on the Eurosceptic poison. And, okay, yeah, you agree with that. So, sorry, you were advocating a third way. Oh, I think he'll, yeah, I think he'll embrace Gove, um, and, which is a sort of curious image, really, but he, um, Gove is a very complicated figure, I think, you know, I mean, in some ways, um, he, he is one of the more ideological figures in that uh, cabinet, uh, but he's a complicated figure, he's a generous, spirited figure, um, and Cameron will definitely, Gove will be in the cabinet after this, for sure, for sure. But in a way, the symbolism is with those who cause trouble. Does he bring them into the tent or not? You suggest just keep the nice ones, as he would see it. The mic's coming, actually. Your third way is so nuanced. It's, it's a question of, of also whether he has the balls, basically, to do the total 
clean sweep. Annihilation. Or, yeah, and and that might depend a little bit on how he sees his future because he's already said he's not going to be there for much longer. Yeah, well, that's another yeah. good point. Yeah. Part of the twist of this is they know he's going. That is really... I still, you know, some people think, oh, wasn't it honest of him to admit he wasn't going to fight a third term? I think it's the biggest mistake he's made. I don't think he realized what he was saying. But you feel when people have announced their departure, you know it from the worlds you all operate in, you can feel the power oozing away from them. You could really feel it with Tony Blair, you know, that once he said, I, you know, I'm going to serve a full term, but not another term after that. Everybody started focusing on Brown, not least Brown. Because um, they know, knew it was about to happen. And I think whatever happens, actually, how ruthless as you'll be as Cameron, third way, Cameron, um, power is going to kind of drain away from him quite quickly because of that foolish pre-announcement. Yes. Won't he bring Boris back into a position that he'll fail? Isn't that the best way to kill him? Well, that's, uh, that's another third way. Um, Ed Balls always thought that uh, Tony Blair would make him a junior Northern Ireland minister as a way of killing him. Um, and there is some speculation that um, Cameron will make Boris health secretary um, <laughs> while the doctor's strike continues um, as a kind of punishment. Uh, yeah, he could do, but the symbolism of that is... I'm conciliatory. Uh, so that brings us on. Yes. As health secretary. He would turn it down and therefore claim the moral victory that my convictions are stronger than any job David can offer me. It's hard to turn down a cabinet post. You've got to remember, this is his dilemma. You know, it's not easy for him, this path he's now on. Um, he's being tested for the first time. Being mayor of London is not a great test. You can sort of hang upside down on a trapeze artist and everyone's on a trapeze thing. And so, Isn't this wonderful? Um, he has never been a minister. It's quite interesting as a journalist, sometimes uh, in Westminster, you see him wandering around looking a bit lost. You know, it's at the party conference, he's a rock star. He arrives for about six hours and is mobbed like David Bowie reborn kind of thing. Um, and, but in Westminster, he's lost, and I think he needs a cabinet post. It would be, he'll have to go off and play tennis and decide what to do. I mean, but I don't think it's straightforward for him to turn down a post, however thorny the post will be. Cameron wants to stay on, partly to make sure he doesn't get the crown. And he, uh, it's the exact opposite of Blair and Brown. Cameron wants to stay on to help Osborne get the crown but I think Osborne might have blown it. But let me ask for... This is a bit distorted. Y yes, OK, and then... To you think to bring him back in? Yeah. The only way Cameron loses by bringing him back in is if in doing so, he gives him a new dimension, a new sense of authority. As I say, he's only been mayor of London 
I say only, it's a, it's a substantial job. But it's not as big as those cabinet jobs where you have to take big decisions about how you cut, say, defence spending or, you know, if you're in the business department, what the hell you do about keeping a steel plant open. He's not had to face those kind of decisions. And he would have to as health secretary, for example. Um, but I, what I think you're right about is that whatever move Cameron makes, it would be with the intention of destroying him whether it's in or out. But this is a bit, I've got to ask those of you who think, we've had the, I've only asked one of the questions, which is, do you destroy him? Those who think, yeah, is that the question I ask? Because you put your hand up, so it must be, ask, would he be tough and go for these people? How many of you think he'll be completely expedient and try and bring them all into the big tent? As uh, few, much, many fewer hands, but um, let's ask, sorry. Oh, if I ask that one, it's a long night. Um, so let me ask the other question then. How many of you? So about I would would I be right to say about two thirds said you think he would do take him on and all that? Or, sorry, if I asked, he's being expedient. Is that the question I asked? Do you want to come up here? Which which of the dilemmas did I put? All right. Okay. No, I think quite a lot put their hand up. I think we might have to have a recount. How many think he will be expedient and bring Boris back into the cabinet? How many think he will be tough and take these bastards on as he sees it? Jonathan Dibbleby will say about half and half. No, it's not. It's a big, <laughs> it's a big, big majority. Right, okay. One, sorry, one of those of you just put your hand up. Well, right at the back there. What, oh, yeah. Why Hello. You... Hi, Steve. Hi. Um, why do we think that Cameron would actually have a plan for his exit, bearing in mind he didn't have a plan after he'd won the election? <laughs> and, you know, it assumes he's got balls and he doesn't. So... Uh, or brains. Right. Well, let me answer that very... Precisely. All I can tell you is whether brainless or ballsless, is that a word? Um, he is giving a lot of thought to this reshuffle. He is going through the thoughts that we are now going through. Because, as I say, it's a, it's a moment of space. In politics, the stage is cluttered quite often with dead bodies, but... Uh, lots of bodies, including the media, the hysterical UK media. And you rarely have space. And this might be, if the majority in this room are right, a bit of space. So all I can say is he's giving this some thought. Now, you might get it wrong. The reason he seems unprepared about this second term he's got is because he assumed there would be a hung parliament, like all of you this time a year ago, except for one of you. Um, so he wasn't prepared for this majority. They were rushing out with these silly statements during the election campaign, Cameron and Osborne, on the assumption that they could say that that bloody Nick Clegg has blocked it, we don't, can't do it. Suddenly they've got to do all these things. Now, it's only sinking in that with a majority of 12, you're going to have trouble left, right, and centre. So I think that's why it's all so haphazard now. But he is giving a lot of thought to this reshuffle. Uh, yes? Do you know if he considered resigning if there was going to be another hung parliament? Or 
No, no, he was hoping if there was another, he assumed there would be another hung parliament. He was going to resign, obviously, if that hung parliament led to a Labour, Lib Dem, with a bit of a nod and a wink from Nicola Sturgeon coalition. And he had prepared a resignation statement, famously. It's been published. Quite well written, actually, his resignation statement. Um, the one thing they didn't expect was an overall majority. They were really surprised. Uh, Linton Crosby told them they'd get an overall majority. They didn't believe him. I gather George Osborne kissed him um, on the Friday morning, uh, which is something Linton Crosby is still getting over. Um, but he was paid well enough to compensate. So they weren't, they weren't, they weren't expecting this. And it's, um, it's gone through two stages psychologically with Cameron and Osborne, and the two of them are kind of tied together. The first one was obviously a kind of euphoria. You know, history would now register that Cameron had won an election. He thought he'd go down in history as another failed leader. Um, but the euphoria has now changed completely to a recognition that in a way he's got a party that's harder to manage now than under the coalition when he could always blame Vince Cable. You know, if something went wrong, he just said, if only Vince Cable wasn't... I could deal with Nick, but Vince Cable makes things simple. Can't do that now. And I think he's finding it really hellish. Uh, so you've spoken... Does someone else want to... We need to move on very quickly, but yes... You seem to, uh, you seem to think that um, uh, Brexit might actually happen, but if you look no, at... I'm, what the I'm not, no, I don't, don't actually. I, mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm giving up predicting things. I mean, well, if you had asked the question, why do all the people here think that Brexit won't happen? And one of the do you think it will or not? No, it will not, no. Right. And the reason why is because um, I'm influenced by what the bookies think. And... <laughs> And all the bookies are, are spot on on this. Yeah, yeah. And secondly, that the pound against the euro has been rising inexorably, which means that big money is on this. In other yeah. words, the marketers think that, in fact, Britain will stay within, the, within Europe. Yeah. So my view is that it's likely that we'll stay in Europe. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so what would you do if you were Cameron? No, don't, don't, don't answer. But I know, yeah, well, if we do, that this gives Cameron some space. Anyone who hasn't spoken before we move on to Corbyn's dilemma? Yes, the guy at the front. Could you just wait for the mic? Thank you. So with, with respect, Steve, you've missed one point, ah. which is that even if the country votes 10% to stay in, yeah. The conservative activists and members, even mem uh, voters, will vote to go out. Yeah. Cameron won't have the space to take on the outers. Yeah, that is a good point, actually. When I said he might have some space on the political stage, you may well be right, there will be no space on the political stage. He'll win this thing on the back of Labour votes, and his own party will be in a degree of anger that is either very familiar to some but quite frightening when the anger reaches a kind of boiling point. And you could be right that he has no space. He has to accommodate his angry party. Um, in which case, you wonder why the hell he held this referendum in the first place. Well, we know why he did. I bumped into the um, former Shadow Foreign Secretary, Douglas Alexander, the other day, who now works for Bono in a slightly surreal partnership. Um, <laughs> Apparently, he plays a great bass guitar, Douglas. 
No, he's dealing, you know, he's dealing with Bono's good causes, in inverted commas. And he said to me he couldn't think of, he couldn't think of an equivalent offer, this referendum, of which the risks are massive and there is absolutely no gain to be made in any scenario that follows from it. I thought it was quite a perceptive point. He then went off and played another gig. Um, yes, at the frontier. We must move, then we'll move on to... Okay. Would he reshuffle to try and bolster George Osborne's position? And put, or would Osborne do the reshuffle effectively so he could try and win his um, credibility back? Well, Cameron... Uh, Cameron's, it's, it's so interesting, their relationship. Cameron adores Osborne, and in a way, it's been the reverse problem of Blair and Brown. As you know, Blair and Brown, by the end, uh, the loathing was extraordinary. But the loathing did produce a degree of sort of paranoid scrutiny. So, you know, if Brown announced anything, number 10, what's he doing now? Let's, let's kill it. Let's, you know, let's spend all night examining every bloody element of this. And if Blair announced everything, goes, oh, what, what's he doing? Let's kill it. Let's kill it. And there was scrutiny between the two of them. With Cameron, he has such high regard for Osborne. Osborne basically has the space to do what he wants. And I think Cameron still would like Osborne to succeed him, but he's a realist. I think for sure he'll try and stop Boris, and then he'll look around and see what the situation is. Osborne um, has been like Gordon Brown, who's very similar to him in some other respects, brilliant at these reshuffles, at promoting his allies. And he's got allies scattered discreetly around every department. And for sure, Osborne would be, will be consulted in this post-referendum reshuffle if he's strong enough to make it in a way that they, they want. If it's okay for you, kind of time is racing on as ever with these things. I want you now to leap from Cameron's unusually, I think, troubled mind at the moment. I think Cameron is quite nervy, as you would be, thinking, my God, if I triggered something here which is out of my control, to Corbyn. Now, the more I think about today's events, I don't know if you know this. I was just reading about it uh, during the interval. Um, Corbyn, after the Livingston thing, which was a trauma for Corbyn on a personal level. As again, these people are human beings. Cameron with his father, who he adored, being you know, caught up in that Panama thing. Corbyn will have hated phoning Livingston and said, I'm suspending you from the Labour Party. But apparently, Corbyn told the whips to also suspend John Mann, you know, the figure who berated um, Livingston outside for Millbank, the BBC place, calling him a Nazi sympathiser and all the rest of it. And Corbyn said, all right, I will do the deed, which I will hate doing, but you must suspend John Mann as well for calling Livingston in front of all the TV cameras a Nazi sympathiser. And the whips refused. And um, I cannot think of any situation. The whips are meant to be the agents of the leader. You know, if you think about any turbulence in a political party, the Maastricht revolts under John Major, what are the whips doing? The whips, blah, blah, blah. 
The whips told their leader they weren't going to do it. So that, it seems to me, for all the other stuff whirling around, is another act of defiance. One of a series of quite unprecedented acts of defiance. Just think about his year, Corbett's, once he realized that the allotment was over and he was going to win this thing. And the cucumbers would have to wilt. Do cucumbers wilt? I don't know. But anyway, when he won it, he must have thought for about 10 seconds, my God, I've been this backbencher all my life, but now power is with me, unexpectedly, but with me. Since then, he's faced having to let his shadow foreign secretary speak against him on Syria, with Corbyn sitting next to him in the House of Commons. He's had to pretend he supports Europe. He has to now sack his, well not sack, suspend him from the party, his close friend. And the whips tell him what they're going to do with the person Corbyn really hates, John Mann, not the other way around. I know of no other situation where the whips have told the leader they won't do what he wants, they're going to do something else. Now, you, Corbyn, it seems to me, in that situation, are running out of time. However much you have the support of the party membership, something quite weird is going on and undermining. So, you too have a reshuffle, which he's going to do after this referendum. Some of his people are saying, change the whip's office. Get people in who you rate and trust. Get rid of Hillary Benn as Shadow Foreign Secretary. You've got what for you is a defining vote on Trident coming up. You can't be humiliated again. Right, you're in Corbyn's mind now. Do you do the dramatic act of recalibrating that front bench to represent you? Or do you, Corbyn's, feel too weak to do very much at all. And you fear that if you do very much at all, you will trigger a revolt that becomes unstoppable. That is a dilemma which his team agonize about all the time. I don't know the ins and outs of it, but I'm told that people like Seamus Milne, who used to write for The Guardian, now his press secretary, urge him to be, you know, go for it. Let's have no more Hillary Banner, Shadow Foreign Secretary. Let's have a whip's office that do what we tell him to do. Corbyn's. You're all Corbyn. You thought you were going to be on an allotment and going on walking holidays. You've become leader of the opposition. You never thought this would happen. Do you, in what might be your last chance, appoint a team of total loyal figures, which means sacking Hillary and others, or do you think you are too weak to do that and you just stagger on knowing most party members support you? Corbyn, who goes, which Corbyns go for the ruthless reshuffle? Right, okay, and which Corbyns stagger on hoping that in the end it all works out? Okay, I think a majority are for staggering on and hoping it all works out, whatever that means in 
the current turbulent state of politics. Those Corbyns who put their hand up to say that they were for a dramatic headline-grabbing, in effect, purge of your dissenters, of which in Westminster there are many. Of course, in the Labour Party outside, you are still largely adored. Who put their hands up to say, go for it? Uh, do you mind me asking why? You're Corbyn now. The, if you wait for the mic. The people who voted for him wanted him to be different. He has no choice but to be different. So if he's going to not do anything, he will disappoint those people who supported him. So he right. has no choice. Interesting. He has to. He has to do it. To do so it. again, on this cluttered political stage, there is no other option for him. It's quite interesting because while he is both ideological and committed, I'll come to you in a second. If, if, in fact, if you just get the mic ready, um, Corbyn, as some of you know, I mean, you know, he, he, some of you probably know him. He only lives five minutes away. Um, he's quite a nice bloke. So, for example, in January, there was every intention that he was going to sack Hillary Benn. And do you remember he had that long reshuffle that lasted about eight days? And he invited Hillary in, and Jeremy said, well, Hillary, that was... He's known Hillary for years in a sort of Freudian way, the son of his hero and all the rest of it. Um, that was all very difficult, Syria. Um, perhaps it would be a good idea if you did another job. And Hillary said, well, with every respect, Jeremy, I only want to do this one. Jeremy said, fine, absolutely fine. Uh, you carry on. And so... <laughs> because he, he's never had to be ruthless, and he's a nice... I mean, he's been ideologically rigid, but he's never had to be ruthless. He's never had to manage people. And I think he will find it really difficult. But you think he's going to sack a lot of people. And you just think he's got no choice but to. Anyone else on, on that? This, there's going to be a dramatic moment, and perhaps it will be the defining moment. Yes. And, and then at the back. Um. Oh, sorry, yes, sorry, I forgot, yeah, yeah. You go first. Then. Is it, is it yeah, um, it was just in response to the gentleman's point, yeah. which was, you've actually jumped forward to the Euro election, but there's a bunch of elections next week. Good point. And Labour will be battered in those elections. Good point. And in that situation, I don't think there can be any call towards Corbyn. Corbyn's got to start looking to save, um, rally his own position. And... The fact that you've mentioned the whips, which I only heard about just now. Yeah, me too. That shows how people understand when you're knocking on the doorsteps just how unpopular the guy actually is. I think the only chance of him, a purge to him, is for the birds, to be right. quite frank with you. Okay, but. so very different view there. Um, if we go to the back and then to the, to the front. Yeah, I think there's someone at the back who had their hand up. Uh, no? Yes, okay, over there, please. I think the hand, yeah, right at the back, and then we'll come to the... Uh, the I guess the rationale was now or never, if you're going to survive. Now or never. So you think he's got to do it. Yes, again. Now. And um, it is really interesting, because if you're right and they do badly in the elections, perhaps your theory that he's got no space other than to do it, it's the exact opposite. He's got no space to do it. You have to be successful. You have to have the authority of electoral success, I think, 
to do it. So I think you might be right if you're right about next week. Yes. Yeah. Um, I, I think in terms of the sort of the interest of the party, ever since Corbyn's um, victory in, in September, I think the right has actually caused nothing but problems for the party. Um, I mean, I think uh, so. Uh, Ivac Cooper, Chuka Amuna, that they've they just they, they threw the toys out of the pram from the beginning. Uh, you know, they they were some great talents, but they decided to leave. Um, you know, that this latest um, kind of. John Mann incident. I mean, he has caused as much harm to the party by causing by calling someone else in his party a Nazi sympathizer. That that is as much harm as 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 defending racism. That it's completely. Uh, I think I think there is a case to to actually maybe face up to this section of the party which wants to see his downfall. Uh, okay, so you you think he should stay and take him on? It, John Mann has certainly generated some surreal headlines. All the two of them. I mean. This U.S. newspaper, Labour and Nazi Meltdown. I mean, who would have thought that headline? Right at the very back, I think there was a hand up, and and then how about there? And yeah. Hello. Um, just wondering how you see this ending. Um, obviously, Corbyn has this can't win round the PLP. So how does this end? Well, this is the great circuitous uh, dilemma, talking about dilemmas. Um, you know, you, you can go round and round in circles uh, as long as the membership back him. We're in this weird situation that the MPs don't and the members do. So if anyone challenged him, I don't see how they win the membership. What I would say is that in politics, most of what happens, you can kind of predict, except for us a lot a year ago predicting the outcome of the election. When people surprise you, it's worth paying attention. And post-Corbyn, I've been looking at the people around who've played this card quite well. And I think, I'm not saying now she should be the leader or anything, but I think Yvette Cooper is worth, she's playing it quite cleverly by focusing on an issue. No, no, oh right, okay, right. <laughs> Remember, this is just a bit of fun. This is not in our power. Right, right at the back, right at the back there. And Hello, Steve. Hi. Um, just to completely take it away from the UK, yeah. just obviously Cameron, Corbyn, they're actually quite sensible when you compare it to the eyes of Donald Trump. I mean, what the hell's happening on the international stage? Yeah, well, the, the, what is, it's, it is utterly... Bizarre and interconnected. You know, it's all very well, US newspapers headlining Nazi meltdown in the Labour Party. Um, yeah, exactly. What's, you know, uh, the, the, what's happening there is equally bizarre and yet, I think, connected. I mean, something odd is going on at the moment, um, which is that the revolt against the mainstream is so intense that out, so-called outsiders, and Donald Trump actually isn't an outsider. You know, he's a wealthy New Yorker, and, but these perceived outsiders can talk total rubbish and yet somehow resonate. You know, the idea that he's going to build a wall to cordon off Mexico is like something out of Monty Python, you know. I mean, he's going to build it himself, where, you know, it's bonkers and yet resonates because of this level of mistrust. It's really interesting. I'm doing a book about this at the moment. It's, uh, I've only just started. 
from, frankly, a, a high level of ignorance, which will probably still be in place when the book comes out, if it does. But it's really fascinating. You know, Sweden, Denmark, France, all these places are experiencing exactly the same thing as the United States in equally bizarre manifestations. And so it's not surprising when we have talked tonight about a Tory party still in agonies over Europe, the Labour Party in a Nazi crisis, um, is actually part of a pattern across the Western world. My theory is actually that Trump and others have heard that I want this metaphor to work, and <laughs> they're doing it on a global scale, so me and Bono will be, I'll replace Douglas Alexander, me and Bono will be doing stadiums in the United States and Stockholm. But you're right to mention it. it we can become too insular here. There is something weird going on in the UK. Look at the SNP. I mean, weird things are going on, but they are everywhere, which is why it's so important that we um, keep these events going so the metaphor can follow the actual <laughs> events. Um, right, now, uh, it, okay, one more on this, and then we'll just see if there's... Could I just take you back to the last but one question? Who do you think will lead the Labour Party into the 2020 <coughs> election, and will there still be a Labour Party in 2025? <laughs> well, on the basis of me just floating one name out, it won't be Yvette Cooper on the reaction that uh, <laughs> she got. Uh, I mean, both the glory and the torment of politics is its unpredictability. I've, I've thought all along that it's highly unlikely that Jeremy Corbyn, for lots of reasons, will take the Labour Party into the election. I don't want to sound ageist in front of such a young audience. It would be inappropriate. But British politics now is so demanding and relentless with this bonkers media, social media, and all the rest of it. Um, to be doing that and fighting a tough election, age 70, with MPs out to kill you and all the rest of it, I think would just be too much. I, so I don't think it will be him. I don't know. I don't know what will happen. Um, it, you, you, the, the broader existential question. Parties, in the end, are quite robust. you know. And I, I speak to people who have contemplated starting a new party, and then they looked at what happened with the SDP, and it, you know imploded in very kind of quite propitious circumstances for them. I mean, they had glittering former cabinet ministers leading that party. Shirley Williams. I remember reading The Guardian uh, when Shirley Williams left The Guardian. Sorry, left The Guardian, left the Labour Party. Um, <laughs> uh, same thing. No, 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 no. Um, not the same thing, actually. Um, and a letter writer... Uh, to The Guardian said, Shirley Williams has left the Labour Party. The Labour Party will be out of power for 30 years. Very prophetic. So they had all these big charismatic figures. Now, if Chuka Umana was to announce he's setting up a new party, I suspect a lot of people will think he might change his mind four days later. You know what I mean? I mean, there aren't the same heavyweights around. So I suspect it will somehow be, God knows how or in what form, something within the Labour Party, but who, who you know, th these, are, these are weird 
times. I mean, I th if I thought I was be standing here talking about Nazism, and you know, I mean, it's the whole thing is, is very odd. Uh, yeah, have, have you had a no? First question. Yeah. yeah. I've still got Jeremy in my head, so I've got to get out. Absolutely, out. you're still Jeremy. Yeah. Um, will John McDonnell be Jeremy's Yargo? Well, yeah. Well, this is again a very, very interesting question. There's no doubt at all that, first of all, about this betrayal and loyalty thing. It's very interesting. When Jeremy um, formed his shadow cabinet during a traumatic weekend after he won, uh, which a lot of people refused to serve and all the rest of it, he was under huge pressure, as some of you will know, to appoint um, someone else as shadow chancellor. But Jeremy was absolutely determined that his close friend, John McDonnell, should do it. So Jeremy that weekend was loyal to friendship and conviction and not to party unity because the parliamentary party at least were traumatized at the time by John McDonnell coming. But there's no doubt of the two of them, the one that has adapted better to the glaring lights of the front bench, neither of them have ever experienced it in their lives, is John McDonnell. Um, I, you know, I, I'm too scared to say this in light of your reaction to Yvette Cooper, but I think he's a good interviewee. You might disagree with every word, but his demeanor is quite effective. He is looking at how you combine that sort of people's movement of you know, Cyprus in Greece and Podemos in Spain with expediency. Um, I don't think he'll find the answers necessarily, but he's interested in these things in a way that I think Corbyn is not. So I think he could be an, an Iago figure. I mean, who knows? I, the thing is, if Corbyn goes on the back of a coup, it's quite an odd outcome that his closest friend then gets it. Um, but I think he is capable of being an Iago, um, and it would be an astonishing moment. But I think, to be honest, it's more likely to be if Corbyn goes voluntarily, he would definitely stand for the leadership. He, too, is quite old. I mean, this is, I, I don't want to go back to this thing, but it's tough. Um, but there's no doubt, I think he quite fancies this. And he's enjoying it more. I think Corbyn is torn from hating lots of it. You just have to see his reaction when he opens his door and he's doorstep by all those journalists. Wholly understandable. But if you're a leader, these are the things that you've got to put. I mean, normally, you know, before all this happened, he used to go on his bike, cycle to West Westminster, vote against the leadership, cycle home, <laughs> and then go to his allotment for the weekend. Now he opens the door and there's sort of 80 photographers saying, Corbyn, are you a Nazi? And, you know, and he, he clearly hates all that. He will have hated shafting Livingston today. Um, but of course there are bits of leadership that are utterly mesmerizing and intoxicating and hard to give up. So we'll see, but I think it's, it, it, it is possible. And if it were to happen, it would be an act of Shakespearean drama yet again on the stage. Just before, I mean, we're running out of time fast here. Um, has anyone got anything else, that, you know, Burko? Order, order. By the way, I, I, you'll all know this. I tell this anecdote, so I won't tell it, but I might do, about Burko <laughs> and Cameron's theories. You know, Cameron hates Boris, but he also 
Burko's pretty close in the hatred sphere. And he's got this theory that Burko, during Primus' questions, has clocked that the TV audience peaks at 12 minutes past 12 and interrupts at 12 minutes past 12 every Wednesday. Now, since I've said this anecdote, people sometimes text me to say, I've got my timer out. You're absolutely right. Burko's up at 12 minutes past 12. And at 12 minutes past 12, Burko goes, Order, order, will the honourable gentleman sit down, do some yoga, take some sedatives, and stop showing off. The voters hate it when we're showing off. Hello? Um, anyway, order, order. Has anyone got any other questions? We're almost out of time. Yes. Who's going to win? Well, as uh, uh, someone over there pointed out, yeah, I think it was you, was it? The, the, we're actually, this is what's so silly about politics at the moment. We're in the midst of an election campaign where every single person in the UK has a vote. I mean, normally this would be mega. Because we're in a Nazi crisis and an EU referendum, no one's paying any attention. Everybody at Westminster and the polls suggest that uh, Sadiq Khan is going to to win in London, and by quite a substantial majority. I'm told he was absolutely freaked out by the Ken Livingston drama today and tweeted within about 10 seconds that Livingston should be kicked out of the party, I think. And so it shows there's still a high level of ner nervy uh, feeling around. But I I, everyone I speak to, including Tory MPs and so on, uh, assume he's going to to win it. Um, but you're right, the assumption is that elsewhere in England, and Scotland's just, you know, out on its own at the moment, uh, elsewhere in England, Labour are going to, I think the prediction is, lose seats at a point where they should be gaining them. Um, but that's, that's, so that's the prediction at the moment. I think right at the back, have you asked one already? Yeah, I'll tell you Very quickly, because then we'll come over to those who haven't. Is Dave Miliband going to come back on a white horse and be the next Tony Blair? Oh, blimey. You, that got more negative reaction than when I mentioned Yvette Cooper. Um, I think there's part of him who would like to. Um, the Millibands are a very curious mix, the two brothers. I've known them for years and years. And they're a curious mix of genuine humility and modesty um, and an awareness of their limitations, and gargantuan vanity and ego at the same time. It's a very odd combination. So things can go wrong for them. Like, do you remember David, when he was seen as the next leader, being photographed with his banana, and then he didn't make a bid when James Pennell resigned? But somehow, there's a part of David who would like to do it and be seen as the great saviour, partly to torment his brother. But there's no way it's going to happen. I mean, if the Labour Party is going through a Nazi crisis, they don't want a Miliband crisis. I mean, it will look odd if... Um, sorry, I'm not, I'm not, uh, this is not because they're Jewish, but it's because having had one Miliband um, who lost an election, to have another one, albeit in a different political way, it's just not going to happen. But uh, there is a bit of David, he comes back and speaks every now and again, and he copies Blair's mannerisms like Ed used to. And uh, no, I don't think it's going to happen, but I think he would like it to. I think you, yes. Um, I just wondered, in a globalised world, do you think national leaders 
can really make any difference to society in the way that Thatcher fundamentally changed this country, for the worst, I might add? Great question, actually. It's a great question. We'll make it the last one because it's such a great question. And I think if it's okay with King's Place, we'll stay here for three hours to explore <laughs> this um, theme. I think it's one of the most interesting, the powerlessness of power. Um, as most of you will know, or all of you will know, Robert Peston is about to do a Sunday political interview program. I think it starts in about two weeks' time. And that means on a Sunday... This is, this is answering your question, believe it or not. On a Sunday now, there will be the Andrew Marr show, Murnahan on Sky, um, at the same time, Peston's new program, Pinar on Five Live, then there's The World This Weekend, it's on. They are... Uh, sorry? Andrew Neil on Sunday, yeah, as well. They're all scared to go on his one. Um, so there are more political programs than interesting interviewees. Literally, that is the situation. Um, and the reason there are so few interesting interviewees is so few of them wield real power. Um, but uh, so they'll all be scrambling for Cameron, Osborne, Corbyn, while he's still there, is interesting. McDonnell is interesting. Uh, one or two others. But then you're starting to get desperate. I mean, it's bonkers, the Andrew Neil thing, because the key players are too scared to go on. He's quite often interrogating some obscure junior shadow cabinet person as if they're, you know, co committed the greatest sins on earth, you know. But you said in 1980 this... And, but, Andrew, I was only two at the time, you know. And, <laughs> I'm only kind of junior shadow works. I've got no power at all. Yes, but what do you... You know, it's... And, and most people in this global economy and globalised market, most politicians have very limited power. But because of the culture of the UK... And the other thing, the UK is much more devolved now. Thatcher had power over Scotland, which finished the Tory party off in wielding it, but she had real power. Of course, now they... You know, Nicola Sturgeon's got a lot of the power. So, but the UK demands that politicians affect a kind of mighty omnipotence. So Osborne can't go on the Today programme when Humphrey says to Osborne, you know, so, George Osborne, what will the economy be looking like six months' time after your budget? And Osborne, if you're speaking the truth, will say, well, actually, uh, John, it's up to what happens in China. It partly depends on the Eurozone. It partly depends on India. And uh, I've actually got very little power over this. Um, Humphrey's next question will be, I think you should resign um, if you're that useless. You know, so instead, Osborne has to say, under me, of course, the economy is growing faster than in any other industrial country. And it will continue to do so. It's going to be a tough road, but we're halfway through it, blah, 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 blah and pretend to be more powerful than he is. And it's the same with these outsiders, Trump and so on. Because they've not been contaminated by power, they could say what they want. But imagine if he gets into the White House, Trump. Right, let's go and build this wall in Mexico. It won't happen. We all know it won't happen. And um, I think you're right that in the last 20 years, this global economy has rendered a lot of leaders near powerless a lot of the time. And it is interesting watching Cameron now, you know, this Etonian figure um, at the whims now of the voters in a referendum. 
um, wants to do education reform but won't be able to get it through the House of Commons, uh, can't raise taxes because they went into the election saying if they put up income tax or VAT, it's unlawful and they'll be arrested. Um, the powerlessness of power means actually politics is totally irrelevant and we've just wasted the entire <laughs> evening. No, no, we haven't. <laughs> it still matters hugely and is changing dramatically in front of our eyes. As I said at the beginning, I can't remember a time where the two major parties are suffering identity crises simultaneously and none of us are quite sure how it's going to be resolved, even though tonight you've been brilliant. You've got into the minds of Cameron and Corbyn. Um, and it's been fantastic. I'm afraid we've got to end it. I have to say, um, uh, we, there were lots of interest tonight, and we could have sold many more tickets. So they're putting on another event uh, the Monday after the referendum here at King's Place Live, when I think there will be even greater sense of drama and politics being shook up, and we'll know what Cameron and Osborne have done with their reshuffle dilemmas, and we'll have other dilemmas to explore. But you've been absolutely brilliant tonight. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time. Thank you very much. Thank you.